My name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here. If you're joining us online for the first time, thank you very much for taking the time to do that. And if you're here visiting for the first time, thank you for taking time on a beautiful evening to be here. The first week of September 2002 is one that I will never forget. My father had dropped dead on the 31st of August, and I was conducting his funeral. His body was lying in the undertakers on the York Road, just up from the Grove Baths. And with hundreds of people outside, I clung to the edge of his coffin and sobbed. My dad wasn't a Christian. And I needed to know that God was present. I felt nothing. I needed to know that he would carry me through. I felt nothing. I held on by faith to the promise that God was good. And that his love endured forever. And I conducted that funeral. And for months afterwards, I beat at God's door like a child beating at the chest of their father. Say something, do something, show me something, help me, give me something to hold on to. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, it felt as if God had walked out and bolted the door from the outside. Lewis wrote those words after his wife died. And no matter how hard I beat at the door, no matter how often I shouted, God did not say anything. About six months after it, I keep a journal. I'm an avid journaler because my memory isn't good. So I, well, it was good. It isn't anymore. I need to remember things. And about six months after it, I wrote in my journal, one day, God will answer every question that I have. And on the day that he answers the questions, the questions themselves will no longer matter. And I have a choice. I can trust him or I can turn my back on him. And at that moment, I felt something shift in my heart because I realized that I was too restless to let God give me strength. I'd been beating on his chest for too long. I'd been shouting for too long. And I needed to come to the end of myself before I could somehow experience his grace and his love and his compassion. I didn't change suddenly. But over the course of the next few months and years, I felt God slowly, strongly speaking into my life and in my heart. I guess I should confess to you at this moment that I am not one of those uh, preachers or pastors or theologians who feel God a lot. I don't tend to rely on my feelings. I tend to rely on my convictions. I tend to rely on certain convictions and beliefs that I now hold as a Christian, and I trust that they will carry me through. That doesn't mean that I never feel God. But very often, I have to make a choice, and the choice is, I will trust you despite how I feel, despite everything that's going on around me, despite the evidence that would scream at me that you're not present. I will choose to trust that you are. I want to talk to you this evening for 20, 25 minutes or so 
about what it means to bring God your struggles, your questions, your uncertainties, under the title, Where is God when life is hard? And I want to read to you a portion of the Bible from a man called Paul. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, if you have a Bible with you. If you're a guest and you don't have a Bible, then perhaps the person that brought you has a Bible and they can share their Bible with you or you have your Bible on a phone or something. Corinth is in modern-day Greece, and Paul wrote probably three letters to that place. The first one was, is almost certainly the earliest book in the New Testament, probably written somewhere around 47 or 48 AD. There's probably another one that we don't have, and then the second Corinthians that we have in our Bibles is probably the third letter. And he's writing to these people about generosity, about struggle, about his own life, and about how to hold on in the midst of uncertainty. And I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, from verse 8 through to verse 10. Paul has a struggle. He doesn't tell us what that struggle is. Some people think it might have been his sight. He almost certainly was losing his sight by the time he died. We know that because at the end of a letter called Galatians, he talks about having written in large letters. See what large letters I have written to you. Other people think it might have been the fact that he had a limp or a club foot. Some think that he had an illness that he struggled with that wouldn't go away. Some people even think that there was a strained and broken relationship in his life that no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't fix it. We don't actually know what it is. <clears throat> but we know that it's described as a thorn in his flesh. He describes it as a messenger from Satan. It's something that was afflicting him so badly, and he desperately wanted God to take it away. And every time he asked, God said no. Every time he brought this issue, whatever it was, God said no. And then here's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships with persecutions and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Struggling is not a sin. Finding it difficult to connect the faith that we hold as Christians to the lives that we live every day is not a sin. It's part of working out what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I've been a Christian for 32 years, and I've heard a lot of dodgy preaching and theology in that time. 
I can remember one particular time when our son, um, Benjamin, was on life support. It was 1995, coming into 1996. He was about 10 weeks old. And what ensued was 13 years of battling for him. The community that I was part of at the time called a prayer meeting. The doctors had said to me, you need to go home and phone your family because this little boy is not going to make it through the night. He's been on life support about 16 or 17 times since. Debbie stayed with him. I went home to phone family. Walked into a little tiny flat and I was just desperate to get back, but the community had called a prayer meeting for, me, for us, for Benjamin. And one of the community came up to me and said, Malcolm, God has spoken to us about your situation. And in those situations, you are desperate. I said, what has he said? And they said, your son's going to die and it's because of sin in your life. I closed the door and collapsed at the bottom of the stairs and sobbed 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 because I was surrounded by a group of people who had a wrong idea of life and a wrong idea of faith. What they taught, what they believed was if you struggled, God would just take the struggle away and everything would be fine. And that if the struggles continued, there was something wrong with you or something wrong with your belief or something wrong with your convictions. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. There's an awful lot of talk in churches, particularly churches like the one that we're in, where people will say, all you have to do is believe and God will do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And it isn't true. Life is hard. Sometimes we will face struggles. In fact, I would go further. Some of you tonight, I don't know all of you, I'm praying that some of you are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. And you might say, gosh, you're not painting a great picture. I'm going to tell you, and I use this language very intentionally, the God's honest truth. If you're considering becoming a Christian tonight because it will make your life easier, don't do it. Do you ever hear somebody standing behind a pulpit and preaching, come to Jesus and he'll make everything easier? Don't believe them. It isn't true. I want to ask you to consider coming to Jesus Christ because he is the truth. He is the way and he is the life and he's the only one that can make sense of the mess that we live in. I want to ask you, those of you that are already followers of Jesus Christ, to put your trust in him again, to continue trusting in him despite what might be going on in your life, despite what might be happening, because he has made us strong, unbreakable promises. But I'm praying that we will, as a church, continue to be a community where we're allowed to be honest about our struggles and open about the fact that sometimes following Jesus is hard. I would go further when you read the Bible, if you just let the Bible speak to you, particularly the New Testament, but both the New and the Old, you discover that if you're going to live a, a good life, a life that makes a difference, a life that leaves a legacy, a life that somehow is planted in good soil, then struggling is unavoidable. 
On the night before Jesus Christ was butchered at a cross, he said to his friends, and it's recorded in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the words in 2 Corinthians that I'm going to refer to again in a moment or two, as an old man, wrote two letters to a young man called Timothy, who was a pastor in a city called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And Paul wanted this young man to understand what real living for Christ was like and what it meant to lead a flock, to be a pastor like Davy is and Pip is and I am to a flock like you. And here is what the Apostle Paul said to that young man. It's recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Struggling is an unavoidable component of Christian faith. You cannot avoid it. So how do we deal with it? Jesus in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, called the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through to 12, said, you are blessed, you are to be happy. The Greek word is makarios. You are to be ecstatic when people persecute you, revile you, reject you, and say all manner of things against you falsely. How many of us feel like that? After a hard week when people have accused us of things, have said horrible things, we're finding life difficult. Do you get up in the midst of that and go, yes, another day of struggle? I don't think you do. None of us do. But this kingdom, this following Jesus, is a topsy-turvy world. The priorities and the values are different to those around you. You see, in 21st century Northern Ireland, you are gauged successful if you have got stuff, if you've got a good job, a good career, if you've got a big house and money in the bank and everything's gone well, then you're successful. But that's not what the Bible describes as success. The Bible describes as success something that I could sum up in one word. Faithfulness. Living true to God. At the end of the 1970s, a number of missionaries with the Elam movement were butchered and murdered in Rhodesia. Successful? Not in the world's eyes. In God's? Shimmeringly successful. Beautifully faithful. A man called Jim Elliot went into a tribe of South Americans with four or five other friends a number of years before, never came back, butchered, murdered. Successful in the world's eyes? No. Five wasted lives in the world's eyes. In God's eyes? Beautifully, beautifully successful. Of the 11 apostles that survived after Jesus' uh, murder and resurrection, Judas killed himself. All of them, except John, were killed for following Jesus. In 325, at a famous meeting in a place called Nicaea, when the church was arguing about whether Jesus was God or not, two-thirds of those that were present as bishops and leaders in the church had either lost an eye, an arm, a leg, or sustained life-threatening injuries 
because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Successful? Probably not in the world's eyes, but in God's, remarkably so. You see, struggle is unavoidable if you're going to live for Jesus Christ. The decision that you and I have to make is what we do with it. I want to put it to you this evening for a few minutes that it is possible to change the culture of your life. Let me explain what I mean. And while I'm doing it, find a verse in the Bible found in the book of Philippians chapter 4 verse 12. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, explains a whole series of struggles that he's had. Physical ones, emotional ones, spiritual ones, political ones, religious ones. They're all there. Everything that you could imagine he has struggled with. And he recounts some of those a little bit to a letter, in a letter that he wrote to a church in a place called Philippi. And I want you to hear what he has to say in chapter 4. Verse 12, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Hear those words again. I know what it is to have little and know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whatever culture he had in his life, he was able to navigate every storm, every difficulty and every struggle and come out the other side still trusting in God that's the kind of faith I want to talk to you about tonight. A faith that can weather every storm. I want you to think for a moment, if you know anybody who has ever been more maligned than Jesus Christ. This man was completely innocent of all charges, and yet he was murdered. He was poor, and yet he was rich. He was rejected, and yet he was secure. He was attacked, and yet he didn't respond angrily. He was a refugee. He was a child that was born into a family where there was dubious parentage of when people talked about them. He had fled from one city to another and had been carried into Egypt by his mother and father, then carried back to Nazareth and pushed around from pillar to post like a parcel of human meat. He was accused of things. He was laughed at. He was ridiculed. He was run out of town. He was mocked. He was made to feel small. You think of all the things that could happen to any of us and in one way or another, they happened to Jesus Christ and yet none of them destroyed him. The culture of his life was different. He was able to overcome them all, just like the Apostle Paul was. Whatever the culture of their lives is, I want it to be the culture of my life too. You see, I know that as a 47-year-old man, I'm going to continue to face struggles. I'm going to continue to face uncertainties 
Life isn't always going to be fair. It's not going to be handed to me on a plate. Bad things happen to people who are trying to live right. That's just the way life is. And I want something or some things to hold on to in the midst of that struggle so that I can live like Paul did. Does that make sense? Well, let me offer you some of the things that I think can help us. Number one, we have a God who understands exactly what we are facing. Christians believe that when God came and lived amongst us, he took on human flesh. Fully and completely entering into the life that you and I live. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and you will hear these powerful words um, uh, from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and you will hear these powerful words about Jesus Christ. Starting at verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a story told about the Queen Mother, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, that during the Second World War, she and her family um, were in and out of Buckingham Palace because of threats of bombing. And there was a particular bombing raid in May 19, uh, April or May 1941. The same bombing raid, by the way, in which my aunt was killed in Belfast with her fiancé on the day they got engaged. One of my mother's sisters, her two-year-old sister, had died 20 years before by falling into a boiler. The raid hit Buckingham Palace, and uh, the Queen Mother and King George VI um, looked around it, and it's reported that she turned to her husband and said, at last we can look the people of the East End in the eye. In other words, here we are, king and queen of this nation, and at last we know something, not quite as much, but something of the sorrow and the suffering and the struggle of those whose lives have been impacted. Let me tell you something tonight. What sets Christianity apart from every other faith in the world, in history, is God can look you in the eye. And he can say, I know the struggle you are facing because my son faced the same struggles. He lived amongst us. He walked amongst us. He carried our sorrow. He was hungry. He was tired. He was attacked. He was criticized. He knew what it was like to be cold. He had to learn how to speak. Talking about this little boy who grew up who was also God. John's gospel says, Luke's gospel tells us, and the child grew in wisdom and in the knowledge of the Lord. How can God grow in knowledge of God? How can the incarnate, infinite, how can the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-seeing God contract himself down to a baby who has to learn to talk Aramaic and hold a hammer and a nail? It's impossible for us to work out, but it's the heart of Christian faith. God knows what it feels like to struggle. He understands it. 
And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have learned to understand that that is something powerful and helpful and inspiring to me. God has faced this. There's an interesting interplay of two stories in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22. In verse 31, Jesus has warned his disciples that he is going to be criticized and attacked and rebuked. And one of his disciples, a man called Peter, looks at him and says, Never, Lord! I'll never let that happen! And Jesus says to him, Peter, Satan has desired you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Christians also believe that there is an enemy to our lives who wants to destroy them. His name is Satan or the devil or Beelzebub or Lucifer. He comes promising everything and delivering nothing. He robs us of our joy. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, this thief comes to kill, to steal and to destroy. That's what he wants to do with you. He will take the struggles that you face and he will whisper in your ear, see, there's no God. See, there's nothing good that can come out of this. You're lost and you're trapped and it's hopeless and you're never going to get out of it. But followers of Jesus learn a different response to him from, yeah, you're right. We learn to lean into God. We learn to allow God and his grace and his mercy and his strength to carry us through every trial. We learn what it is to trust him. We learn what it is to be honest with him and to be vulnerable with him. And when Jesus says that to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, just 11 verses later... We find Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane saying to his father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It was the night before he would be murdered. He knew what it would cost. He knew how painful it would be. He knew what he would go through. He was struggling with the weight of all that he was going to do as a man. And yet he still did it. He can look you in the eye. He can look me in the eye. And he can say, I know what it is to struggle. And I know what it is to conquer. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we carry our struggles like a security blanket. No one has struggled as much as me. No one understands my pain. No one can help. No one has gone through what I have gone through. I could say that to you about a lot of things in my life. Over the years, maybe you'll hear some of them. But even if nobody on planet Earth ever understands, God does. If you're not a Christian here this evening, or you're watching online, God knows what you have gone through. If you've wandered away from God because... You feel as if your life is plan B and you didn't sign up for it. God knows what you've gone through. If you're finding yourself angry at him, saying, you let my wife have an affair, you let my husband have an affair, you let my son die, you let this happen and you let everything else happen. There are two perspectives uh, about, that we can take to look on life. One is to say it's all God's fault. Another is to say, carry me through. Give me the strength to get through today because I need you. And you know what? God will help. In the darkest moments of my life, I have discovered that God is still there. 
when there was no one else to cling to and nothing else to hold on to, God was still there. When I felt as if everything was falling apart around me, God remained faithful. The second thing that I want to say to you is, as we struggle, it helps us to see through the struggle and out the other side. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we're told this about Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside also every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. God can see through the struggle you're facing and out the other side. How did Jesus endure the cross? How did he endure the humiliation of life? How did he endure the rejection? He saw through it and out the other side. Who, for the, the pain set before him, uh, the joy set before him, endured the cross. He saw what he was facing and had to go through, but he saw out the other side to pick up Lily's story. Why stand in Cambodia? I remember in my mid-30s holding a child in uh, sub-Saharan Africa as it died of um, HIV. I remember standing in Mumbai beside a drinks fountain when a woman in her mid-twenties came up with her four or five-year-old daughter and put the little girl's hand into my hand and said, look after her, and then she dropped dead. I have been to too many funerals. I've slept in too many shanty towns. I've visited too many cities where there is abject poverty and dirty water and I've watched kids drinking it knowing they're going to end up with cholera or with typhoid. To be naive enough to think that God just sorts all of that out. The world is full of struggles and pain. So why put yourself through it again and again? Because that's not the end of the story. Because through people like Lily, people like you and me, standing in the midst of our struggles and still believing, somebody somewhere sees the light of grace and love and purpose and hope. And tiny acts of kindness and faithfulness at school or in work or at college or in the way we vote or the way we spend our money can change the world. And we refuse to be cynical. We refuse to give up and look back and say, nothing will ever change. We believe that God is at work. And should it take all that we have and all that we are, we're not going to stop investing in rescuing children and serving the poor and helping the weak and standing up for the vulnerable and speaking out the truth because through it, God brings his reign and rule to planet Earth. So maybe tonight your struggle is about the fact that you're tired in this, weary not and well-doing. Look through what you are facing and out the other side. One of our daughters is just finishing a law degree and she's going to take a year out and then she's going to do a master's in human rights law. And uh, here's why she's doing it. In 2010, the six of us trumped off to Uganda to do a mission trip. Our daughter at that point was... 12 or 13, something like that. And at the end of the mission trip, we were talking and we said, so what have you all learned from this mission trip? 
And she said, well, I'm going to be an international human rights lawyer. That kind of thing a 13-year-old says, isn't it? And we were like, oh, that's interesting. Why did you decide that? She said, because of the vision that I had. We said, what vision? You haven't told us about the vision. What vision? She'd be helping leading, lead a children's mission with our uh, nine-year-old daughter at the time. You're never too young to get engaged in these things, by the way. Maybe we should lead a mission trip to somewhere. That would be cool. And they looked across a playground, and, and uh, Anna saw a little girl being beaten with a stick. It wasn't happening, really. It was a vision, a picture. But it was so real to her that she got up to run across the playground to stop what was happening. She's a bit like that. And she saw a man walking across the playground, and he wrapped his arms around this little girl. And he looked at Anna, and he said, Anna, I will take this beating for this little girl, but I want you to give your life to defending little girls like this. And in that moment, she made a decision, and nothing will change her mind. She saw a different future. She saw a different end to the story, and it's shaped every decision. We've investigated it, we've interrogated it, we've pushed her to think about different things, not because we don't want her to do that, we just want to make sure that she knows what she's letting herself in for, and nothing will shake her. She's definitely got hunter blood to ask my wife about that. <laughs> Thirdly, we can cope with our struggles because we have a God who understands, because we can see through them and out the other side. But most importantly of all, because God himself has borne our struggles and carried our sin. 750 years before Jesus Christ was born, a man called Isaiah wrote these words recorded in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck by, down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus Christ went through all of that 750 years after Isaiah wrote that for you. For you. Every sorrow, 
every heartbreak, every struggle, every pain, every affliction, every rejection, every single thing that could be thrown at him, God took and carried for us. For you. God, in the end, is the ultimate answer to our struggles because in the words of a very old hymn, some of you may know it, he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone for you. Please don't say to me, God doesn't care. He cares so much that he went through that for you. Please don't tell me he doesn't understand. He understands more profoundly anything that you and I could ever think of. He has borne your struggle. God, in the end, in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking about suffering itself, not next week, but the week after. In the end, God doesn't give us an answer to suffering. He enters it. He looks you in the eye and he says, I understand. I know what you're going through. I have been through it too. And here's my last observation for you. Before I ask Lily to come back and lead some worship, and then I want to say something else. We can cope with our struggles because we know that God understands. We know that we can see through it and out the other side. We know that God himself has borne our struggles and our sorrows. But for those of you that are Christians here tonight, the biggest change in our heads and our hearts must be that we understand that Christian victory is not the absence of struggle. It is the presence of God. Nowhere in the New Testament is there an example of the early church asking God to take their struggles away? Nowhere. What you hear them saying is, Lord, Acts chapter 3, you have seen their threats. You've seen what's being said. Now give us courage and boldness and confidence. Not take away the struggle so I don't have to face it, but embolden me in it so that I can stand for you. I wonder how many of us need to pray that prayer this evening. Lord, give us courage to stand, to face what is happening around us. If God never changed a thing about your life, would you keep following him? Would you hold on to the fact that he holds on to you? I've come to determine, to discover in my own life that the greatest gift of suffering and struggle is knowing that you can really believe something even in the midst of the deepest uncertainty and that God is faithful. I promise you, I promise you, if you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, your sorrow, your struggle, your pain and your questions, he may not make your life easier, but he will carry you through every storm. He will take you through every uncertainty. He will never abandon you. He promises it. And tonight in this gathering and across the internet in the world, he reaches out his hands and he says, will you trust me? 
Will you let me give you a new perspective? Some of you have carried your pain and your struggles long enough. A lifetime of it. Decades of it. And you live for the day when it will end. And God says, I'm enough for you. Right here in this hall, I'm enough for you. In a few moments, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. But I've asked Lily to come with the band and lead us in a response to this. Before I say one more thing to you and invite you to sing a song with me, I'll explain all of that in a moment. But for now, in your heart, why don't you think and reflect? What is it you're facing? What is the struggle that you're going through? Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. And as you sing these songs or listen to them being sung, God is whispering to you, you can trust me. I want to help you. And you're going to see Christians singing around you. Don't for one minute think that they're singing because their lives are perfect. <laughs> if you've got a perfect life as a Christian, put your hand up. What a disappointment. But you will see a couple of hundred people around you singing something they believe despite what they feel. Why don't you join us in that wonderful journey of faith? Lily, lead us. And then I'll say something in a moment or two. Would you like to stand if you're willing and able? So as you stand for a moment in God's presence, some of you will have heard this story before. But I want to tell it to you again and invite you to make a response during the song that we will sing in a moment or two. In 1871, an American businessman called Horatio Spafford lost his two-year-old two -year son in a fire in Chicago. It ruined him financially. Two years later, almost bankrupt because of an economic downturn, he and his wife and four daughters decided that they would leave America and come to England. They were booked to travel on a ship called the SS Ville de Havre. And at the last moment, Horatio's plans had to change. So his wife and four daughters went ahead of him and he was delayed. As the de Havre crossed the Atlantic, it struck a ship called the Loch Ern and it sank and all four of his daughters died. Arriving in Wales, his wife, Anna, sent him a now famous telegram which simply said saved alone Horatio Spafford immediately made his way across the Atlantic to be with his grieving wife and close to the spot where the two boats collided the captain of the ship asked him would he like a few moments to reflect 
And by the light of a gas lamp, he went down to the bottom of the ship. And he penned a hymn that has become known as It Is Well With My Soul. When the, the hymn was put to music by a man called Philip Bliss, the tune that you will sing it to in a moment was named the Ville de Havre after the ship that carried them. They had three more children. Their little boy died when he was four of scarlet fever. The Presbyterian Church of America wrote to them and told them that the sadness and the sorrow that they were feeling was divine punishment. Horatio and his wife Anna and their two daughters Bertha and Grace moved to Jerusalem in um, 1881 and they set up a movement which the American press called the Overcomers. In Jerusalem it became known as the American Colony and it was the forerunner of both the Jerusalem Hospital and the Bethlehem Hospital that still exists today. What we do with our struggles determines their lasting legacy in our lives. So what will you do with yours?